This is a dice of Brussels. This is a, a slightly different episode. Uh, this is a, a recording of uh, a panel that I chaired at the uh, UK and a Changing Europe annual conference in London on the 10th of June. And it was about uh, agriculture, fisheries, um, environmental questions, um, and how that related to the, the referendum debate. Now, what you're going to hear is is basically just a, an unedited, well, with one little bit that was just a kind of little bit of uh, how do I make PowerPoint work, uh, from four speakers. So you're going to hear in uh, this recording, firstly from Natalie Bennett, who uh, is currently the uh, leader of the Green Party in England and Wales. She's also uh, an agricultural scientist by training, as you'll hear. You're going to hear from Craig McAngus uh, at the University of Aberdeen, talking about fisheries and some uh, survey work that he and I uh, have been doing. You're going to hear from Martin Howarth, who's the Deputy Director General of the National Farmers Union, who have been doing a lot of consultation uh, with members and doing research and uh, about the conclusions that they've reached. And the first person you're going to hear from is Professor Wynne Grant, who's at the University of Warwick. Now, he's someone who's written extensively about agriculture. Um, you're not going to hear the very first thing he says, because uh, whilst I might be uh, somebody who's done almost uh, 200 of these things, I seem to not be able to remember when to turn on the microphone. However, all that you'll miss is just him talking uh, about the uh, report that he's produced. Um, and if you Google him uh, and his report, you'll be able to find more information. So I hope you'll enjoy it. There's some short uh, contributions from the four of them, uh, just sort of five minutes each uh, at the top of this, and then some question, questions and answers uh, from uh, the audience. So first of all, Win Grant. Under the auspices of the Yorkshire Agricultural Society to consider the implications of Brexit for UK farming, we expected there to be complexities and uncertainties, but they were even greater than we anticipated. Our key aim was to provide information that farmers and others concerned with agriculture could use to question politicians during the referendum campaign. We also considered that agriculture and food had not been given sufficient attention during the negotiations and subsequent discussions, indeed, Perhaps the small but distinguished nature of the audience today is testimony to that. Should Brexit occur, our report draws attention to the issues that would have to be considered in exit negotiations. Both the report and the executive summary can be accessed online through the Yorkshire Agricultural Society. Now, there's no precedent for a member state leaving the European Union, so we do not know how the so-called Article 50 process, which leads to an exit settlement, would work out. What seems very likely is that two years provided for negotiations would all have to be used, given the various relationships that would have to be disentangled. The best deal from a UK perspective would be to negotiate a free trade area with the EU. That would mean, for example, that sheep meat exported to France would not face tariffs. Supporters of Brexit argued that it would be in the interest of the EU to negotiate such a deal, given the volume of trade in the UK, although it's a much larger proportion of GDP for UK exports than it is on average for exports from other member states to the UK. In any case, the EU would not want to give too generous a deal, as it might encourage other member states to think that leaving would be a viable option. The UK would almost certainly be expected to make a contribution to the cost of the single market, although this would be less than the current contribution the UK makes to the EU. 
Because the remaining member states would want a level playing field with the UK, they would also expect us to adhere to single market rules, although how broad the definition of single market rules would be would be a matter for negotiation. The UK would remain a member of the EU while these negotiations were taking place, and the existing agricultural subsidies would thus continue for the two-year period. Our working party did take the view that the existing Pillar 1, or general subsidies, would be vulnerable once Britain left the EU. For many farmers, not least those marginal farmers in upland areas, these subsidies represent the difference between making a profit and a loss. In an ideal world, agriculture would not be so dependent on subsidies, but one has to consider the volatility of world markets and the extent to which the food chain in the UK is dominated by the buying power of large supermarket chains. It is argued that the savings that we made from not having to contribute to the EU budget would enable these subsidies to continue to be paid at the current level. However, the Treasury has long had them in its sights as market distorting. There are considerable pressures for greater reduction in public expenditure. The subsidies will not disappear overnight, but they would be likely to be phased out. We think that Pillar 2 subsidies for agri-environmental schemes of rural development are far less vulnerable. They are embedded in contractual arrangements which, which extend beyond 2020. Moreover, there is a domestic coalition of support for them from environmental and conservation lobbies. Some farmers think there will be a considerable reduction in the regulatory burden outside the EU. However, insofar as there is an issue about the gold plating of regulations, this occurs in London rather than Brussels. There are also considerable domestic political pressures for regulation for environmental, conservation, animal welfare, public health and consumer groups. Regulations are there for a reason, to protect the environment, farm animals or human health. British farmers benefit to some extent from the political cover that is provided by farm organisations and other member states where agriculture is a higher percentage of GDP or there is a strong cultural attachment to agriculture as in France. At the moment, Britain conducts international trade negotiations as part of an EU bloc. EU trade agreements with third countries would have to be renegotiated, a process that could take some years to complete. And one difficulty is that the UK lacks experienced trade diplomats. UK farmers benefit from the high tariff barriers that the EU has erected against external agricultural products, particularly livestock and dairy products. The concern in any WTO nego negotiations is that protection for farmers will be traded off against arrangements for manufacturing industry and financial services. This could place some farm businesses at risk, leading to diminished food security. Many farms, and this was raised in the opening session with Ed Miliband, particularly those in the horticultural and field vegetable sector, are very reliant on migrant labour from elsewhere in the EU for planting and harvesting. If these farms are to continue to operate, we would need to recreate a version of the soil scheme to assure a supply of migrant labour. Our overall conclusion was that Brexit would not be beneficial to UK agriculture or to the food chain more generally. The common agricultural policy is far from being a perfect policy, and it needs to be reformed in a number of ways. Some progress has been made, and these efforts would need to continue if it was decided to remain in the EU. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. Uh, secondly, we've got uh, Martin Howarth, who's Deputy Director General of the National Farmers Union. Thank you very, <coughs> thank you very much. Um, the view of the National Farmers Union, which we reached after uh, long uh, consultation and, uh, uh, and evidence, was that actually we are better off, on balance, being in the European Union on agricultural terms. We did two studies, one last year which was looking at the issues uh, 
that would be faced, and the other one, we commissioned a Dutch university to do an econometric study of what would be the consequences of leaving. And these are on our website, or I've got copies if you are that interested, I can give you them. Um, what are the reasons why we think we are better off in for agricultural reasons? Uh, firstly, access to the single market, that is vital to ag British agriculture. Um, it's more important actually to agriculture than to the rest of the economy because something like 65 to 70% of our exports go to the European single market, um, which is higher than the for the rest of the economy. Um, there is no other alternative that gives us equal access to the single market. The so-called Norwegian model, for example, excludes agriculture. Uh, so there is nothing on offer which is remotely as favourable as the single market. Second reason would be, the, and, and Wynne has mentioned this, there are more than 50 trade agreements that the EU has negotiated with third countries, which are also useful to British farmers. They would have to be renegotiated. That would take a long time. The third reason would be the uncertainty which would arise if we did vote for Brexit. Um, everyone knows now about Article 50 and the lengthy process that would uh, take place. No one knows what kind of trade arrangements we would be able to negotiate outside the European Union. The CBI has said that the uncertainty that this would bring uh, is in itself extremely damaging um, because it would uh, sap confidence and... Uh, cause a, a lack of investment in, the, in that period of uncertainty. They said uh, the CBI estimated it's something like 0.75 to 1.5% of GDP would be at threat and agriculture would be in the same position. Labour, that was uh, has been raised a couple of times already. Um, we do rely on British, British agriculture does rely heavily on a seasonal labour probably about 20, 20, between 20 and 25,000 uh, seasonal labourers a year are required and there are about 35,000 European uh, workers working full-time in agriculture. Um, it's difficult to see, I mean, continuing, uh, a continued membership of the EU would guarantee that we would have that access to that labour. Leaving would leave us in great doubt. Um, the, the Brexiteers would like to say that we could go to a points-based system. Oxford University looked at that points-based system and concluded that, in the case of agriculture, 96% of the workers that are currently working would not have got through that points-based system. Of course, you can say, and people do, well, we would change the points-based system, in, that, in which case you'd end up in the same situation as far as immigration. So to me, that's a, uh, a circular argument. Being in the European Union is, uh, does mean that we are with a group of countries that has more sympathy for agriculture and more interest in agriculture than Britain does. Britain is a much more urban society than most of the rest of Europe, uh, and it is just a fact that that's the case. Um, so you, you don't necessarily get the same degree of political sympathy. And from personal experience, I can say from a long history of working in Whitehall and Brussels, I get much more access, much more interest, much more sympathy from in Brussels than I do in Westminster. Um, the food chain, uh, I mean, farming is not an isolated industry. It's part of a food chain. It's interesting to note that very much the whole of the food chain is in favour of staying in. That goes from the agricultural uh, supply industries, uh, from the, the supply farmers, to the NFU, our view is that we should stay in to the Food and Drink Federation, which represents the manufacturers, uh, you know, almost overwhelmingly in favour of staying in. 
and worried that uh, if we there was a vote to leave, they would have to reconsider the food manufacturers would have to consider where they would be located, whether they would have to relocate to the stay within the single market. Um, right to the other end of the chain, um, the uh, catering industry um, heavily, heavily reliant on immigrant labour. The only link in that chain which is, has not come out in favour of staying in would be the retailers, and you can draw your own conclusions on that one. Um, the <coughs> The issue uh, for farmers is often categorised as being subsidies. It is not the most important issue. The important importance, uh, yes, farmers do currently receive um, a, um, an amount of direct payments from the European Union. It is surprising to me that those that a number of politicians that have previously <coughs> criticised those subsidies and said they wanted to end them are now saying that they would continue or even be increased. I do not find that credible, um, but it's not the subsidies itself, it's, this, it's the equality of treatment which is the important thing. Whilst we're in a single market competing with um, other farmers in Europe, we need to be treated the same. Staying in the European Union gives us a much more opportunity for that to happen. Finally, regulation and product approvals are issues which certainly we, there are, we, we are not satisfied with the current situation. In the European Union, regulation is often uh, overcomplicated and not uh, properly evidence and science based. But whether or not that, that would be improved if we left the European Union, I doubt. Um, as Wynne said, there would still be regulation. The idea that there would be a massive bonfire regulation is, is fanciful. And um, some of the, uh, and Wynne made this point. Uh, some, one of the things that farmers complain about most is gold plating, that is taking European regulations and making them more complicated and more onerous uh, when they're applied in Britain. So the idea that somehow we get a better regulation by leaving the European Union is, I think, not uh, credible. And the same goes with product approvals. I don't think that the current system in Europe is credible or science-based. But equally, I'm not convinced that if we left the European Union, uh, a national policy would be any better. So those are the reasons by, that the, the NFU has taken the view it has. It's not the case, obviously, that all farmers believe this or uh, take that view. But I haven't yet heard a credible argument on agricultural terms that we'd be better off leaving the European Union. Those farmers that generally tend to argue that we should leave do so for non-agricultural reasons. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Martin. Uh, third, we've got uh, Craig McAngus from the University of Aberdeen. Yeah, because I've got uh, statistical information, I thought it would be best to have a have a few graphs. Um, why am I doing? Why have I done this survey? And basically, um, it's a survey of uh, fishermen in the UK. Now, I understand the gender implications, but there are no fisherwomen, <laughs> right? <laughs> I didn't even ask the question. Um, and we're talking about uh, the people who I've uh, uh, surveyed are uh, skippers and boat owners. There will be women working in the wider fishing industry and production um, and sort of on land, if you like, uh, fishing industry. But um, when it comes to skippers and boat owners, it is a very uh, male um, dominated industry. So why am I doing this? Well, I've always been interested in the fishing industry to an extent. Uh, I come from a, a family that's got a few people that uh, are involved in the industry. I come from a part of the country that um, has, has quite a large uh, imprint on the industry. 
Um, and I thought, why, what, what better chance uh, than the, the, the referendum to actually find out what fishermen think of the EU? Because anecdotally, you hear that they don't like it very much because they don't like the common fisheries policy because essentially they are limited to the amount of fish that they can catch and land because of the, the quota system. Um, so a couple of generic pictures of fish and trawlers. The one at the top, however, is uh, a picture from a, a gentleman called John Buchan who's got a, a vessel in, in, in Peterhead and uh, he is um, uh, one of the kind of uh, the leading figures in the Fishing for Leave campaign. Um, so we can see what he thinks about uh, the common fisheries uh, policy. And that's displayed on, on, the, on the side of his boat. Um, to, to get the, 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 the survey out to fishermen, I had to contact fishing associations, producer organisations across the UK, which was quite an arduous task. Um, and I managed so far to get uh, just under 120 responses. Now, it might not seem like an awful lot, but we're talking about over 10 metres, 1200, under 1,200 uh, registered fishing, sorry, just over 1,200 registered fishing vessels in the UK. So we're talking about a 12%, uh, sorry, a 10% uh, sample um, here. There aren't very many fishermen out there anymore with uh, boats of a substantial size. Um, okay, so uh, just a couple of headline, headline findings. Uh, firstly, intention, voting intention in the referendum, they want to leave. 90% of them want to leave. I mean, obviously, uh, who, who's answering this? It may be the, the, the very interested uh, fishers that are doing this, but looking through the data, I've got a broad spread of fishermen across the country, uh, responses from the Isle of Wight, uh, from, from Devon, uh, Kent, Northeast Scotland, Shetland, Orkney, West Isles, uh, and quite a few from uh, Northern Ireland as well. No, no Welsh yet, but there's only about 30 boats in Wales over uh, 10 metres, so let's try get, I'm trying to get the Welsh to, to answer, but essentially it's, it's pretty um, conclusive. Over 9 in 10 uh, fishermen, um, boat owners and skippers want to leave uh, the European Union. So why do they want uh, to do this? I've got a couple of um, uh, statistics on this, and this is the one I've decided to show. Um, but essentially they believe that it will improve uh, the industry's uh, fortunes overwhelmingly, um, mainly because they believe that they'll be able to catch more fish, to land more fish, and, and essentially uh, generate more uh, income uh, for themselves. Now, I think it's fairly obvious to see how a, a sort of a, a UK-wide fishing policy, obviously we have to think about the, the, the multi-level governance element in this as well, the Scottish Parliament, um, for example, uh, regulating um, fisheries policy um, in future. But, uh, I mean, talking to, talking to some fishermen, I think they, they kind of look at Norway as, as an example of a country that has control over its territorial waters and can really benefit from its fishing industry. And um, I was trying to find some official statistics, but the, the fishing industry in Norway is very big. Um, depending on how you measure it, it can be measured as like the second largest industry after oil. So it's, it's and they generate billions uh, in, in, in exports. Um, so essentially, fishers seem to believe that leaving the, common f the EU and therefore leaving the, the CFP would allow them to catch more fish, land more, and, and generate more income. Now, on the other side, we have to consider the, the single market implications here, because what about the trade of fish? So I asked a question on that as well, and they're pretty relaxed. Fishermen seem, don't, don't seem to worry too much about um, leaving the EU and the effect that it would have on the trade of fish. Now, I would imagine that, that uh, like fish um, producers, processing factories, etc., owners of these uh, businesses may have a different uh, opinion. Uh, I haven't asked them, um, but it would be interesting 
to see what they think. But when it comes to the, the skeptical <coughs> boat owners, they certainly are very relaxed. And if you look at the amounts of fish <coughs> that countries like France, Spain, Ireland, Italy, those are the top four uh, countries in the EU that, that import uh, fish from the UK. And the French taking about 70,000 tonnes a year or something in, in that range. The, 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 the official statistics are available on uh, the UK government's websites. I think fishermen basically see, uh, because of the amount of fish that is bought from overseas, these countries will have to come to some sort of arrangement with the UK and they're not too worried about, about their overseas uh, markets. Um, there are a couple other questions we, we asked in the survey, and I've, I've been working with uh, Simon on this, um, is to try and figure out how do fishermen differ from the UK public. So I've asked quite a few questions from the, the Eurobarometer polls. Um, one question that I asked is, uh, in general, what sort of image does the EU conjure up for you? Now, I asked questions, um, these questions to see how basically they differ. Um, when you ask uh, fishermen how uh, do you feel your voice counts in the UK, more or less the same as the general UK public. When it comes to uh, the, the vision and, 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 and notions of, of the EU and its fairness and its red tape, etc., they're, they're just far more Eurosceptic all the time. Um, they're just a, a, a group, a population um, that, are, that are very, very, very Eurosceptic, very against uh, the European Union in, in its different guises. Um, so that's basically all I have uh, today, and there's still quite a lot of data to analyse uh, from this survey. Um, one of the things I'm quite interested in is how do fishermen vote. Um, and I've been, I've been I found quite some interesting uh, things there. Some expected, um, but in Scotland, some unexpected things. Um, so uh, we can talk about that later, but that's uh, all I have for now. So thank you very much, and I'll, I'll flip the slide, uh, slides back. <coughs> thank you very much, Craig. And our fourth speaker, I'm very pleased to say, is Natalie Bennett, who's the leader of the Green Party. Uh, so please, Natalie. Thank you very much. Um, and it's lovely to be here today. As you'd expect, I'm pretty well spending my life touring around all kinds of different rooms and facilities. Um, a pub in Worcester, a town hall in Lancaster. And one of the things that um, I have to say that food, uh, agriculture and fisheries don't come up in the debates very often. Mm. Except there is one thing that does keep coming up from the uh, leave side, uh, and that is people saying variations of, we have to leave because we'll get control of our fish. Which just conjures up in my mind a fish with a passport tucked <laughs> under its arm, <laughs> swimming around in circles. Because, of course, large amounts of fish stocks don't respect national borders, uh, and, of course, with climate change, they're moving a great deal. So I think that's an argument that on that sort of top-level scale, I find quite easy to demolish. And it does make a much broader point, which is that there are many things that we share with countries across Europe, uh, uh, our food supply, uh, our fisheries being just two of them. And I think the fisheries is, is an interesting place to start because there has been an awful lot wrong with EU fisheries policy. The Green Party's been one of the strongest critics of EU fisheries policy. Uh, but in 2013, we had significant reforms of the fisheries policy. And one of the things that really this demonstrates is that the British government, British officials, and indeed the British public had a very big say, had a very big impact on the reforms that happened in 2013. Many people will probably remember the very large popular campaign against discards. And that's, we've seen the change made in the policy according to that campaign. So I think when you hear the other side talking about democracy and the lack of democracy, this is a really interesting example to say you know, decisions are made in Europe 
democratically with input from all parts about Europe, including us, and indeed we often have a very loud voice, and we're having a say in this. Um, secondly, and then I'm going to come to the common agricultural policy. Now, uh, as you probably also know, the Green Party has been a very strong critic of large elements of the common agricultural policy. One of the things that we'd very much like to see is a cap on the level of payments. We don't actually think that the Duke of Westminster actually needs subsidies, really. We'd like to see, we very much want to see support continuing for small, vulnerable farmers, but we don't think payments should go up to that large scale. Uh, but lots of what's wrong with the common agricultural policy, and indeed, as our NFU friend said here, there are many things that are wrong with what happens with, with policy that come from the British government, not coming from Europe. And I think there's a second key point to be made here, that there's a lot of anger in the country, a lot of frustration among all kinds of different groups. Uh, but what of the anger is being directed at the EU, being blamed on Brussels, when the fault actually very squarely lies just across the road <laughs> over there. Uh, and, and I think that's where the debate has really failed. And we ha do have a real problem with the, the standard of the debate, the nature of the debate. All too often it's been a um, Tory leadership contest masquerading very thinly <laughs> as uh, an EU referendum debate. Uh, and you know, how much have we seen coverage of agriculture and fisheries policies? Real critical coverage, very little discussion at all. I mean, I see today that Craig has got some, some coverage from his survey. Um, I respect the work he's done. However, I would put more of a question on the question of 10% of people responding to a survey. How many people who don't know, aren't interested, don't really care, are going to actually bother to respond to that survey? So a final sort of aspect of thought on this, which is where should we be coming from here? At the moment, we've looked at the industry perspectives by and large. I'd like to start from the other side of the consumers. And what we really need to think about, what I think is two key issues in the coming issue about what's on our, on our dinner tables, what's on our plates, their food security and their sustainable agriculture, interrelated issues, because we need to be producing the food to ensure that nobody goes hungry. And it is worth saying at the moment in the world, there is enough food in the world to ensure that nobody goes hungry, but almost a billion people regularly do go to bed hungry, and that's an economics, a distribution, a social problem, not a production problem. But we are in the future with a growing world population with the destruction of agricultural land. And I might just mention at this point that my first degree was actually agricultural science. So I'm speaking here in an area of great interest to me so I can get very geeky about soils. Uh, I won't do that right at this moment, but we are trashing our soils around the world globally. And that's a huge issue which desperately deserves more coverage and more attention than it's getting. And some of that trashing, a significant part of that trashing, is because of the methods of agriculture that we're using. And we need to ensure that we have a secure food supply for the people of Britain, for the world, and we need to ensure that we're protecting, enhancing our natural environment, our soils. And it is worth saying that less than 60% of the food that we consume is produced here in Britain. And we have, I believe we could and should be producing much more of that through very different kind of agricultural systems, one of the things I focus on is the, the um, restoration of, of ring and market gardens around towns and cities. But certainly for the near foreseeable future, we're going to be heavily dependent on Europe for food. And we're going to see a world in which food is going to become much more of an issue. Security of that supply is going to be much more of an issue. So I come back to what the Green Party's main position on all of this is. The whole issue of the question is, 
we believe we should work together jointly on the problems that we face. And that is our elevator pitch, one sentence argument for why we should remain in the EU. And I believe that argument applies particularly when you think about food security, when you think more broadly about farming and fisheries. We need to work together to jointly tackle the already pressing problems we've got and the huge growing problems that are clearly on the horizon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, this is where I usually say I'm going to abuse my role as a chair, but I'm chair, so I'm not going to apologise uh, for it at all. Um, one of the themes that's come out, from, I think, from, from all of the, the, the contributions is that the balance between national and European regulation on this, that we tend to think about agriculture and fisheries very much as a, a Europeanised area, moving policy uh, up to that level. But as has been pointed out, we, we have a degree of gold plating of national implications. Uh, is, is this balance uh, an appropriate balance that we have? Um, who wants to take that first? You're all avoiding my eye. Sorry, I'm being distracted. Okay. My phone, which I'm now switching off. Win. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's some very good um, evidence on this in relation to the study that Deborah <coughs> did as part of the general study across government, the, the balance of uh, competences review. I mean, clearly, the general shape of the common agricultural policy is driven um, from Brussels, but of course, the last reform of the common agricultural policy gave more scope um, for national governments or indeed for devolved administrations to um, make modifications to the policy to suit their own local circumstances. I mean, because the, the downside of that is the risk that you start to undermine the single market. Um, which is in many ways the main benefit that we secure from the common agricultural policy. There's a, there's a little bit of a trade-off there between responding to local conditions and um, preserving the single market. I mean, I mean, clearly there is a bit of an issue, I think, about how far the UK government <coughs> tends to adopt EU regulations in a rather rig rigorous fashion, and perhaps turns you know something which is uh, ten words in a U EU regulation to a hundred words. Um, nationally, and that does inc increase the transaction costs that are involved in actually implementing these regulations, which must distract farmers from what they want to do, which is to get on farming, and also, of course, for many of them, protecting the environment. Um, well, I can answer this perhaps as more as a historian. I mean, why have we got a common agricultural policy, um, which you know, dates back to 1962, so the origins of the uh, of the European Union, or EEC as it was then, is that um, to the, the the whole point of or one of the points of um, European integration was to create uh, create a, a common market, a, a market without barriers. Agriculture has always been an industry in which there's a lot of government involvement, and there were very different levels of involvement and subsidy across the six original countries of the uh, European Union and that would clearly have led to distortions if you tried to get free trade within a, an area in which there, there were vast differences between government uh, involvement in, in, in agriculture. So that's why a consequence of having a common market in agricultural goods was that we had a, a, a single agricultural policy, and that is still the case. Um, and that is why, actually, um, we in the NFU have always been quite sceptical about 
um, allowing considerable differences in policy uh, or dif different uh, flexibilities in policy because we um, suspect and we have strong evidence to show we're right that if the European, if the British government's given flexibility, it will not be used to our advantage. So that is why we still see that we do need not necessarily the bond we've got, but as long as we've got a single market and as long as there is government involvement in agriculture, we want to see a common policy. Uh, well, it, it, I was just thinking this is very curious because I'm going to entirely agree with you, although I think the examples I'm going to give you are going to entirely disagree <laughs> with me on, um, in that I think you know, increased flexibility um, is not something you know, broadly that, that we'd like to see be it, you know, in general, because if you look at some of the things that are coming out of Europe, they're entirely admirable. The pressure, the push to ban neonicotinoids, which would be there's increasing growing evidence by the day that these are causing great harm to our bees and our pollinators. Uh, we're in something of a state of flux on glyphosate at the moment, but um, you know, that's something that we see as a huge potential positive for our food system and for human health. And of course, also genetically modif modified organisms. Um, so uh, we agree and disagree at the same time. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, I think it'll be interesting. Let, let's just let's just imagine that there is a, a, a leave vote um, with fisheries uh, to take up Natalie's point about the the, the passport issue. Um, I'll kind of get round to that in a, in a roundabout way. Um, take Scotland for example. At the moment. Uh, fisheries is a devolved area but it's not really devolved because it's Europeanized so most of the decision making takes place in, in, in negotiations between the, 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 the council ministers etc and through the commission um, and then the Scottish government is, is, is responsible for implementing the CFP and often actually makes some of the regulations a bit tighter in order to avoid fines and, and, and whatnot. Um, so there's a question mark there about whether a post-Brexit Scotland, and I'm just talking about Scotland, and I assume there might be a, a case to say that that could be the, the, the position of the UK government as well. It, where the, the where's the policy capacity in a post-Brexit Scotland to actually then legislate for fisheries because that's mostly been left up to the CFP. So it'll have to be replaced with some sort of uh, of, uh, of of Scottish fishing policy. And again, the whole passport issue. I mean, I, I've wondered about this because. Westminster is responsible for, for uh, you know, regulating English territorial waters. Scotland's responsible for its territorial waters. What happens if an English boat wants to fish in Scottish waters? Some of these issues may well come up again. I mean, I, I don't think these, these issues necessarily go away. Um, you know, the, the, the way that the UK is governed actually still makes these issues, um, you know, Technically difficult. Uh, how how these things will play out, obviously nobody knows. But I think it's it's worth considering. Um, and I, I mean, I'm sure fishermen have, have thought of this. Um, what does a post Brexit uh, governance arrangement framework look like for the UK, and what might the, the multi level and territorial aspects of that uh, policy uh, look like? And is there a policy capacity there um, to to consult with the the, the groups and the, and the environmental groups, etc., that would currently. Um, be consulted by, uh, uh, we'd consult at an EU level. I think these things have got to be taken into consideration. Thank you. Questions from the floor? Gentlemen at the front. Do you want to um, say who you are? And yeah, sure. Um, Alan Bullen from Agri Europe. So, 
I just wanted to make one observation on the national and the EU level, which is, for me, the biggest uh, advert for bad um, governmental boxing has been the IT system and the, the boxed delivery of the you know, payments, over, both in Scotland and the rest of the UK, over the past year or so. Um, you know, that's a good demonstration to me to how seriously a post-Brexit UK government might well take agriculture. But my question was on the fisheries. I mean, um, I don't know how much information you've got on the voting intentions. You said not much. No. But, but clearly, the question, my question would be, A, what do the fishermen think of the SNP? Do they vote SNP? Because clearly the SNP starts is firmly to remain in, or even in a post-Brexit world, have an independent EU membership for Scotland. And B, you mentioned Norway, but what about, I mean, there's been a much tenser relationship with the Faroes and Iceland, mm -hmm. historically. How, do, how would that play out? Um, on the voting, um, I asked a couple of questions territorially, if you like. So obviously I asked different questions of Northern Irish fishermen, English fishermen, Scottish fishermen. Um, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, um, but I was surprised that the, the majority of the people who answered from Scotland vote Conservative. Yeah. And uh, I think it was about two-thirds to a third, and quote me on that, it's something along those lines, and I can, I can get those numbers to whoever wants them if they want them. Um, I also asked them about how they voted in the independence referendum, and I know quite a few people, a, a, a lad I know from school, his brother's a skipper, and he was kind of very pro-yes, and other people I knew were very pro-yes. Um, ask the question, it's not the case of the, you know, of the, it seems of a sample of the wider Scottish fishing population uh, certainly voted no um, in England, it's a mixture between UKIP and Conservative, I think there was a solitary Labour uh, voter there and in, <laughs> and in Northern Ireland it was, it was largely DUP with a couple of TUV voters um, I, I mean, I, th I think I, I don't know, but I think the majority of the, the Northern Irish fishing community might actually be in the unionist, loyalist, British kind of part of the country, and I, I need to look into that. Um, so that's kind of an inkling of how they, they, they would vote, um, which again kind of surprised me. I expected more to vote for the SNP. Um, I think talking to fishermen about how they feel about the SNP, I think, well, they'll always kind of say, well, they, they should fight harder for us, but I think they understand the difficulties that a, a, a minister responsible for fisheries in the Scottish government must have, because clearly they're bound by cabinet responsibility of a decision that they really don't have that much influence over and then have to defend itself as a really good deal for Scotland, when actually they probably don't think that themselves and the fishermen certainly don't think that themselves. Um, so it's a very a very, uh, a very, a very, difficult issue for, for, for them um, in terms. Um, in terms of the, the, the negotiations with the Faroes and with, uh, and with Iceland, um, I assume on, on a post Brexit, there would have to be some, you know, bilateral agreements with, with these countries and, and the respective governments. Um, again, there would be a multi-level governance issue because clearly, any sort of international treaties or negotiations are, are, a, are a reserved issue at Westminster. But then in Scotland, obviously, then you know you would you would have that that that, that those complications. So, I don't know is, is my, my answer, but um, I would imagine that. Uh, something along those lines would have to happen, but it would, it would be a difficult process, I think. Mm. There, there's already something called the Nordic Council. Sure. You know, and and, and that, that would be how it might operate. But it's, 
It's all open to question. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the, those forums would exist. And mm. Again, there's so many, so many un un unanswered questions on this. I mean, who knows how it might turn out? Unknown, unknown. Yeah. Hi, so my, my, my name is Ron Moutillier. I'm a researcher on EU affairs for the Policy Network Think Tank. Um, and I happen to work right now on the EU budget, hence my interest in these questions. Um, so I have two technical questions and uh, one broader political question. Two technical questions, so one to uh, win. I think you mentioned the fact that <coughs> um, subsidies, I mean, pillar two subsidies would be protected until 2020, uh, even in case of Brexit. Could you specify this? Because it's something I, I, I haven't seen anywhere. I mean, if that's the case for pillar two subsidies, I would assume that would be the case also for all structural funds. Um, other question to you, uh, Greg, is uh, you mentioned Norway and the fact that Norway being outside, you know, the CFP uh, has control over its territory. Or more control, they see yeah, it now. Exactly, but <laughs> I mean, could you specify this and whether there are any regulatory requirements or let's say, because I mean, they have access to the single market, so I guess there, mm -hmm. there needs to be some form of, uh, I mean, there, there's probably a trade-off here. Um, so could you specify this? And the more political question is, I guess, for Nathalie and Martin. So it's about what, I mean, in case of Remain, what could be for you uh, good options for uh, reforming CAP uh, in the future? So we know that there's, uh, I mean, the midterm review of the EU budget is coming next year. At the end of next year, probably a new budget proposal for uh, after 2020. Now, interestingly, the UK has also led on, you know, in the last 20, <laughs> 30 years on reforming CAP towards more redistribution, more greening, and so on. Uh, are we going to see more of that? What are your expectations? I mean, everyone seems to be pretty unhappy with greening for different reasons. Uh, so what's your take on this? Okay, well, the, the point about Pillar 2 subsidies, as distinct from Pillar 1 subsidies, is that they're embodied in legal contracts. You know, there's a real expectation the farmer is supposed to undertake you know, certain types of activity um, in return for which they will uh, get the subsidy and most of these contracts run beyond 2020 you know, so I, I think it would be very difficult to tear up what is already in existence as a, a legal contract. We, we go into this in some detail in the report as to why we think this is the case but uh, I, I think actually the more general point is as I said in the presentation that really there is a political coalition of support that is um, behind these subsidies which is much broader from the coalition of support for um, kind of one subsidies because there's a lot of support from conservation lobbies, you know, RSPB, which is incredibly strong in this country, which, that support many of these things that are undertaken by, by farmers. I mean, I just on the question of greening, I mean, what I would say in, in the last reform was, I think, particularly on the question of monoculture, what you had were there were some very blunt policy instruments, which in fact didn't um, actually achieve the objectives, whilst at the same time making a lot of unnecessary work for farmers and constraining their decision maker on the farm. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, what should we ha happen with CAP? I mean, very much, um, you know, I've already said we have to stop subsidising enormous landowners, very wealthy people. We need to bias the, the payments towards the, um, the small scale agriculture and a different sort of agriculture, and I very much agree with what Wynne just said in terms of there were some good intentions in the last set and we know what sorts of lovely grassland got torn up as a result of those good intentions misapplied. Um, and I think we have to look at you know, 
again, we come back to the differences between Britain and other parts of the EU. I mean, I was taking a train journey through um, Germany, and it just struck me of so many fields that were actually being managed, yet quite small fields, being managed as four strips with different plantings, different crops, different stages, and you know, the environmental differences to that towards the expansive fields of huge, that we see at the moment, you know, rapeseed flowers, because they really stand out with the yellowness stretching into the far distance, enormous great monocultures that are effectively biological deserts. So, you know, it's not working at the moment. We need to find models that, that do value and uh, subsidise genuinely environmentally friendly agriculture. And that's not easy or simple. And I think one of the problems that we do have also is we're seeing the cap in terms of impact in Eastern Europe is having massive detrimental effects and actually pushing towards larger scale agriculture, which is the absolute reverse of what we need to be doing. So, so we need to see some really major changes. The kind of direction that we tried to go in last time was right. The impacts were clearly wrong and we need to learn from that. And I think, you, assuming that Britain does remain in the EU, um, we can actually look at the fisheries policy and say, you know, there was a huge amount wrong with the fisheries policy and yet we have now actually got to the point where we actually have you know, what most of the, the outside expert observers say is a reasonably sustainable fisheries policy. So it is policy possible to get there. And I think you know, just actually just to comment on the fisheries for a second, you know, I think there's a real problem here is that you know, where the quotas ultimately come from is from the biological capacity of the ocean. That's how many fish we can catch. And I think you're know, getting that across, ultimately it's not a, p a political question. It is actually ultimately a, a biological and that, a question of natural environment. Um, and I think there's a lot of confusion around those two two different limits at the moment. Okay. Um, sorry. sorry. Oh no, you go. Okay. <laughs> um, well, we thought the last reform of the CAP was uh, was a big mistake. Um, there had been a, a benign direction of reform since 1992, and I think the Cholish reform was 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 utterly uh, mistaken. Um, it was instead of being sort of a strategic vision of where we wanted agriculture to go, it was entirely a tactical um, belief that if you greened the CAP, you'd be more likely to get more support and get more budget. The consequence of that, I think, is that there's been what had been a, a logical division between the first pillar, agricultural policy, and the second pillar, rural development, including environment policy. You mixed up in the first pillar the two, uh, you know, agriculture and uh, the environment in, in one, and it's, you know, it's been satisfactory to no one. It's vastly complicated the, the, the policy to the detriment of farmers, and it hasn't pleased the Green lobby. So it was not only a tactical error, it was a tactical blunder. Um, what we would have much preferred to see, and what we would press for again, is to keep that clear distinction between the first and the second pillar and if there is a will for more rural development, more environmental policy, then spend more of the money in, in, in the second pillar and less on the first pillar. Let that be done uniformly across the whole of the European Union. Okay. Uh, in answer to the <coughs> technical part of your question, um, I don't know. <laughs> is it short? But um, let me say a few things anyway. Um, to what extent Norway still has some regulatory uh, frameworks it has to abide by by being in the single market 
that affect its fishery policy. That's basically what you're asking. I'll leave that one to some of the more uh, esteemed uh, specialists in, in, in the EU, but I would imagine there probably uh, would be some uh, environmental issues and things that the Norwegian government would have to um, abide by. Um, I think, though, I mean, at the end of the day, fishermen in Scotland or anywhere else in the rest of the UK, they want their industry to sustain itself. And as Natalie said, there, there are only X amount of fish in the sea. We can't overfish. Um, maybe in days gone by, things were different, but there's obviously a greater scientific understanding of what effect fishing has on particular species in particular parts of the ocean, how it affects the, the growth of, of, of younger uh, fish. I mean, we know the, the example of cod. Cod was heavily overfished, and, and um, we're see, starting to see the stocks recovering. And we are seeing um, mackerel stocks, I believe, and haddock stocks in, in quite good health compared to where they were in the past. So I think it's sensible for any government to be regulatory uh, and, and regulate in a way where the industry can sustain itself in the long term. And the fishermen know that as well. They don't want to um, you know, have, have, have sunshine today and, and rain tomorrow. They want their, 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 uh, their industry to continue. People have got mortgages and bills and stuff. They want, they want the, this thing to, um, to, to continue. Um, I always kind of think of, at least in the Scottish case, there was a Sometimes, uh, um, you know, I, I always kind of, when I was listening to Ed Miliband this morning, I kind of sitting there thinking, I've kind of been here before, I'm from Scotland, you know, a lot of these things kind of seem to be repeating themselves. Um, and sometimes there is a reference to a Scandinavian country without actually really properly understanding what it takes to be like said Scandinavian country. Well, we can be like Norway, well, you need to do X, Y, Z to be like Norway, oh, that'd be quite tough. Um, so, me... <laughs> If, if there is a Brexit and if um, the fishing industry looks to Norway as a model, then I think it would need to look to, to Norway in a serious uh, and, and, and open way um, and, and not just think that, well, if we have control over territorial waters, then things will be, things will be all right. But the, cru the crucial nub of the issue for, for the fishers is that there is said piece of territorial water, but the French and the Spanish come over and are, are able to catch more of that fish than we are. So if there's X amount of fish uh, there, then if it's all going on British trawlers, it's still the same amount of you know, sustainably catchable fish, if you like. And that, that's the, 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 crucial, the crucial issue. It is about kind of ownership. And if you look at the, the Fishing for Leave uh, website and their, their mission statement, it's about sovereignty and control over your territory, basically. The, you know, that, that's their mission statement. It's about the territorial sovereign control over your waters and the fact that by being in the EU and being subject to the CFP, they feel that they don't have that. Um, whereas, you know, looking at the Norwegians, they clearly have more sovereignty. And at least that's how they see it. Can I just ask a question tied into that? Um, Lindsay yes. Watling from the Press and Journal, which is a regional daily Scottish newspaper. You said before there are so few boats left over 10 metres. Yeah. Would, would there be the capacity for British trawlers to catch all of that, the stuff that they say they um, Spanish? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know, but I assume that the idea, uh, I mean, when I asked the question about improving the industry's fortunes, um, that would assume, I would assume that would uh, filter into boat building um, that uh, is, has been scaled back uh, quite a lot um, in the last kind of 20 years. Um, so the, the idea would be that the whole industry would thrive, that the supply chains would thrive more. Um, whether or not the capacity is there within the existing fleets, that's a good question. Uh, maybe it is, but I guess it would, by opening up, from the point of view of fishermen, opening up uh, territorial waters um, and exclusivizing them, if you like, 
then it would, um, it would, uh, it would, would improve the industry's fortunes overall. So I assume there would then be um, some slack that could be taken up by the building of, of, of new boats. Um, I just wanted to stress that we have very much been talking about the boats over 10 metres. And of course, you know, the, yes. small, the small lean shore fisheries is, is you know, an area that potentially is providing far more employment, far more small business opportunities. Um, and the fact that our only about 6% of those smaller, boat, those smaller boats are only got about 6% of our quota is a result, again, of British government decisions, yeah. not as a result of the EU quotas. Yeah. Um, and you know, just as, as a matter of principle, I'm very much inclined towards looking at to see what can we do to promote that smaller scale business, that smaller scale harvesting of fish. Uh, and, and in that case, you know, it's interesting that other countries have a different kind of policy that does very much privilege the small scale fisher people. Um, and that's something that you know, we could make a choice about in Britain within while remaining in the EU. Gentlemen at the back, last uh, question. My name's Sam, um, I work in Parliament. One of the issues that we've sort of scattered around is regulation, um, particularly Natalie briefly mentioned genetically modified organisms. Um, it's an area the EU differ quite starkly to, say, the US and Canada, and something that both the Lord Select Committee and the House of Commons Select Committees have been quite critical of, in that it doesn't differentiate between different genetically modified organisms, everything gets lumped in together. Um, and it's actually quite stringently regulated. I just wondered if the panel have any thoughts on whether that's going to change any time within the EU or whether leaving would allow us to, I mean, the UK are a lot better at researching and implementing genetically modified organisms. You look at Oxitec up at Oxford University than the rest of Europe. Um, so I if the panel have any thoughts on genetically modified organisms in the case of Remain or in the case of Brexit. I mean, it is one of the issues that we consider in our report, and I think one thing we particularly draw attention to is the difficulties that might arise between the different administrations within the UK, because the, you know, both Scotland and Wales um, have taken a strong stand against genetically modified uh, crops, whereas, of course, the position of the UK government in relation to England is a rather different position. You know, they would, if they possibly could, would like to see these crops grown commercially um, within the UK. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the European Union has been unable to make decisions on this particular issue, and therefore it's um, undergone a partial devolution of responsibility to the member states, although in practical terms I don't think it actually makes a lot of difference. Awesome. Yeah, well, we're in favour of um, science-based regulation, so we um, we a lot of frustration with the current system. As uh, Wynne said, it has been partially devolved now, but it doesn't seem to have made any practical difference. And 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 it just is this issue that, um, that again, Wynne mentioned is that there does seem, at a current currently at any rate, to be a difference between the different administrations in England, Wales, and Scotland, um, which 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 does complicate it. But it is a it, yeah, as I said, for us, it is a matter of frustration. Um, I personally doubt that um, if we left the European Union, anything would change. Um, well, perhaps uh, once again I'm going to disagree with Martin, and indeed I suspect Sam disagree with you in terms of I wouldn't um, put the terminology of these being lumpy, lumped together. Um, uh, you know, we very much support the regulation that's there. Um, but I think th there's a point perhaps that hasn't come up yet that is worth mentioning. Um, you, one of the big issues in lots of quarters around the whole Brexit argument is the proposed EU-US free trade deal known as TTIP. 
Uh, and one of the arguments that the Green Party is very strongly presenting is saying that in Europe we have far higher standards, as we see it, in terms of food safety, food regulation. Um, and then, of course, you get to the interesting point because there are people going around saying that, oh, we should leave the EU because of then we won't be in TTIP. Um, however, I would argue that... Um, you, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to conjure up some people's nightmares here, but you know, if we voted for Brexit, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson <laughs> heading to Washington, possibly to talk to President Trump, um, and saying, please, 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 can we have a US-UK free trade deal and we'll sign anything at all? Mm. Whereas by contrast, there's been very strong opposition across, um, if we remain in the EU, 3.5 million people signed the petition against TTIP. And food safety and security is one of the issues lots of people are exercised about within that. Um, uh, 250,000 Germans marching on the streets of Berlin against TTIP. Uh, so you know, our position is we're very much opposed to TTIP. Some of the reasons being because of those regulations we want to protect. Um, we see say, remaining in as the way to ensure that we defeat TTIP. Just as a, a final wrap-up, we talked about Britain, the EU... Could you say something about how much British interests in agriculture, environment, fisheries are shared with other countries? You know, is the UK an outlier in the EU? Is it someone? Is it a country that has uh, a coalition of partners? Sort of alluding to the kind of comment you were making, Renault, about how much uh, the motivation for reform within the system is driven by the UK? How much it's passed for bigger package? Well, I think, I mean, the UK has obviously been one of the countries that has pushed for reform of the common agricultural policy. It hasn't achieved all that it wanted, but I think we have seen better policy instruments arrive over time. So we got rid of, or largely got rid of, the old intervention payment system, which led to these, you know, mountains of um, butter or whatever it was, which then sometimes were dumped on uh, countries in the global south to the detriment of their agriculture. So I think we've made real progress there. And I think there, there are areas in which the UK has exercised leadership. For example, the whole area of animal welfare, I think, is one in which the UK has adopted something of a leading position. I mean, I think the more general point there is, which is in a sense made by Edmund this morning, is that the UK needs to engage much more constructively with the European Union, not, you know, always been thinking about when we're going to leave, or the conditions when we're going to leave, but how can we actually shape um, policy in a much more constructive way? And I think we really devoted ourselves to that, we would have the capacity to achieve a lot more than we've achieved in the past. Uh, I mean, my view is that um, there, are, the, there is a natural set of allies um, for British positions in, in Europe, and we haven't uh, made full use of those because our, our position for far too long has been, in, in, in all European matters, has been negative, um, sullen. Um, semi-detached, budget-obsessed, and um, so we haven't, uh, we, we, we've never been able to pull, uh, pull um, punch to the weight that we should do. And, you know, when you send, the last Secretary of State um, is now one of the leading Brexiteers, Owen Patterson, the, the current Agricultural Minister, um, George Eustace, is another Brexiteer. Is it any? Is it surprising that they don't they don't have influence when they go to the council of ministers? Not to me. Well, I'm delighted to say, Martin, we can find a yeah. point we entirely yeah. agree on. Yeah. So that, 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 that's that's good to yeah. see. Um, you know, if you do negotiation by marching in yeah. with with your bat and ball yeah. under your arm, going, I only play if you do everything that apply the rules that I want to apply. It's not surprising it doesn't work out terribly well. Um, 
But I think this sort of the, the question about, you know, are we systemically different? I think we are systemically different to a lot of the rest of Europe because if you look at our industrial revolution happened much earlier and indeed our industrial revolution in farming happened much earlier. Um, you know, we lost our peasants far, far earlier. And so we, we, we haven't got the same engagement either politically, emotionally or practically with small-scale agriculture as large amounts of, of the rest of Europe does. Um, and, and I think you know, that's something that restoring that, us learning from that, us, us following, you know, going back to that kind of model in Europe is, is a really positive direction that membership of the European Union helps to encourage. And of course there is, we haven't really talked about it, but you know, really local food, specialist food production. Uh, I do know, I'm kind of surprised no one else has said it, but the, um, the Cornish Pasty Association uh, <laughs> yesterday came out in favour of remaining in the EU yes. if you missed the exciting news. Um, and, you know, aside from giving us lots of chances of, to say things like, oh, the Brexit case is looking really flaky and all sorts of things like that, um, you know, it is a reminder of, of the kind of food system that the EU has done a lot of work to encourage local food, you know, high-quality artisanal production, things that has the potential, that has huge economic potential, jobs potential, and potential for our food supply. I can agree on that too. That's <laughs> <laughs> now, fishing is a very small part of the economy. It used to be more, uh, a far bigger industry, and it's uh, obviously been overall relatively in, in decline. Um, does, therefore, the British government care very much, that's the wrong word, but take into account the views of fishermen when it, when it goes uh, into its negotiations. I'm sure it tries nobly to do so, but there are more powerful voices out there that perhaps um, mean that uh, less focus is put on fishing and, and more focus is, is put on uh, other things. Um, would this change after, um, if there was a Brexit, would the fishing industry then be able to grow? Um, potentially, maybe not. Um, would it then lead to a larger industry that was able to have more clout and more uh, capacity to pressure the British government into doing what it wanted? Perhaps. I mean, we, 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 we just don't know. Um, I believe it was in the 1970s that the, the, the fishermen did a, a, a show of force and, and sailed up the Thames in a barrage. Um, that would be a sight to behold. The whole Scottish fleet came sailed up the <laughs> some sort of glorious revolution. How are they going to do that again? Yes, yeah. but I mean, will it? You know, to what, to what extent? Is there not a law that prevents them doing that? Actually, is there not some? It probably was from fifteen hundred and something or another. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll find a law. And I mean, you know, the, 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 speaking to anecdotally to people, you know, they're like, well, you know, the French fishers—they always stand up for their rights. You know, uh, whether that's true or not is a. Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, th these issues are obviously really important to, uh, to, 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 to some people, but it is a, a, a very small part of the pie. So what kind of uh, you know, power these, this group would have at the moment, as ha has had or uh, would have after uh, the UK, uh, if the UK leaves the EU, is, uh, um, I'm not so sure, quite sceptical. Lunch. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Since we're I want about food. <laughs> exactly. We should we should practice what we preach and we should concentrate on food. I want to say thank you very much to the uh, audience for your questions. Particularly I want to say thank you to all four of our panelists, Natalie Bennett, Martin Howarth, Erwin Grant, and Craig McCangus, and uh, join me in giving a round of applause. <laughs> <laughs>